Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Stephen Hernandez, who has had two near-death experiences, and today we're going to learn about them. Stephen, thank you so much for being my guest and welcome. Good to be here with you, Jeff. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. If you don't mind, let's just start with your first NDE and go from there. My first near-death experience, and much of it was mostly just being out of body. I didn't have any fantastical journeys through the tunnel with bright lights and you know, seeing angels and all that stuff. It was very simple and straightforward. I was two years old and and I was on the operating table. I had, my appendix had ruptured. This is in San Antonio, Texas. My appendix had ruptured and uh, I was very septic and they were operating to get my appendix out. And what happened was that I found myself out of body looking at the equipment and the hospital room and I can remember it very vividly and uh, I was out of body and and so I was negotiating with this what appeared to me was well what appeared is a uh, three-dimensional sphere of light that was opalescent and moving the the colors within were swirling around and so I began talking to it uh, telepathically. And the first thing I said, I said, I made a mistake. I really don't want to be here. You know, I, and uh, the communication was such that, no, you, you know, you agreed to be here to do this. And they didn't tell me what it was, right? This didn't say what my master mission was, but uh I was basically strongly negotiating, like, no, I really don't want to be here. And I was looking at the equipment and it was flatlined, you know, and um, I actually saw the doctor walking out of the uh, uh, operating room to go tell my mother that I had died. And uh, after negotiating and not being successful with leaving for good, I went back in my body and that's when the nurses went and got the doctor going down the hallway said doctor he's back come come back so that was my experience I did not get any direction as to why I was here it was almost like hmm, like you know why you're here we're not going to tell you you'll figure it out and uh, and you know it's like you agreed to do this and then I, I had this memory of like oh yeah you know it's like looking down upon this and I chose my family and my circumstances and uh, I agreed to do certain things and I didn't still know what exactly it was, but it was almost like, it was like, okay, I remember looking down and saying, okay, send me in coach, you know, send me in. I was 
a volunteer almost. And then so that experience happened. I, you know, finished another six days in the hospital, removing the sepsis in my body. And then, then I carried on after that. It's amazing that you still have this memory from such long ago. And most people don't really remember much from the age of two. Yes. Um, it's, it's a soul memory. Um, I've had many, many soul memories because I've been on this plane many times. And so I will get flashbacks and visuals of certain periods of time. You know, you get into the aspect of time. My experience of time is like you're in this bubble and past, present, and future are all together. And so it can get jumbled up. You know, you can see past. You can see glimpses of the future that are always subject to change based upon current decisions. Why do you think you were so disinterested in coming back? Well, I was actually interested in coming back. I was not interested in staying here. Yeah. It was just so harsh. You know, it was just, it was almost like I had a burned skin that would be, uh, affected by just wind blowing on it you know it was that harsh the energy on earth was just that harsh Mm -hmm. hadn't you been here before and maybe you had forgotten yes yes that's true uh at that time at that stage i'm sure there were many um forgotten things Mm. uh my experience my my feeling is that i've been here over 400 times Mm. You know, so I've, I remember a lot of civilizations that I've been involved with over the years. At this point in your life, do you feel like 400 is enough and you're not coming back next time? <laughs> you know, people say, uh, I don't want to come back. And, and actually, Earth is actually a very beautiful place. It's just a matter of adjusting to the activities that go on here. And the very inconsequential and non-spiritual aspects that go on. Mm. And uh, so I think as you, the the only, in my opinion, the only reason we all come here is for soul development. And so the more you come back, the typically I would think the more challenging circumstances you might get involved in because that's how your soul is going to develop. Hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to your next NDE. Okay. So it's a very similar experience. I'm 17 years old now and I had to have a left knee reconstruction because at that time I was playing competitive tennis and basketball and the hard courts had uh, really taken a toll on my knee and in order to continue to play competitive sports and tennis primarily, I needed to have this construction, reconstruction of my knee. It was that bad. So I'm on the operating table. Uh, the anesthesiologist was a very good friend of ours. And I actually had a very good surgeon. He was the Spurs uh, surgeon at the time. And what happened was very similar. I flatlined. I got. I was out of body. The same sphere of light was there with me. 
And again, I'm negotiating. So I still really don't want to be here. You know, this is too hard. This is not what I want. And it was the same discussion. You're like, no, no, it's not. You know, you, you need to stay. And so what happened was the the uh, anesthesiologist, I'm very sensitive to chemicals and any substances. I'm just very sensitive. And so he, the anesthesiologist gave me the right, correct amount for my age and weight uh, but it, the sensitivity that I had, my body reacted much more strongly and they couldn't get me back. I was out. And so I saw, so again, I saw myself flatlined. I saw the equipment and I wasn't worried about that. I was worried. Uh, I was more concerned about negotiating, saying, okay, really, seriously, I want out. And it was similar discussion, like, no. You know, you still need to be here. You'll figure it out. So I went back in my body and what, what I remembered, uh, I, the anesthesiologist, he's a big guy, you know, six foot four, good friend of ours. And he's, he's the one that actually is putting me in my recovery room, actually in my room, uh, my, when I was going to recover from my house and I was in my hospital room. I see him laying me in bed and I go, what are you doing here? You know, anesthesiologists don't put patients in their own room. I go, what, you know, I was just coming out of it. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, don't worry about it. You're going to be all right. I said, okay. But I thought that was odd. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went through a six month recovery period on that. And actually, you know, I was able to play tennis competitively through college. I got a scholarship over in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana and went there. And so, but after that, you know, I didn't really pursue competitive tennis after college. I was pretty burned out by then. I started at age nine. So, but any of that, that's what happened there too. No, no tunnel, no nothing. It was just me negotiating with basically like this guardian or whoever right all right the being told you that you would figure out your purpose here have you figured it out and if so what is it yeah i have and uh it changed it it's changes from time to time it's it's a matter of you might have several purposes you know there might not be one purpose but the overall general thing has more to do with healing and healing trauma, um, what I didn't realize until somewhat recently, actually for about a year ago, I there's starting to be a lot more conscious awareness of how childhood trauma can affect your overall health dramatically. And it's very much overlooked um, by the medical establishment. And now with people like Gabor Mate, who's making it a point to lecture about the importance of looking at this stuff, basically it's the adverse childhood event score from basically age zero to seven, how much impact that has on someone's progression of health and illness or unwellness. 
And so I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is something I've overlooked and it's something you really don't want to look at at times. But recently I've really gone into it and understood what kind of traumas I've been through. I basically was started out with trauma at birth because I was x-rayed in the womb at three weeks old. So I, I remember even this feeling of coming out of the birth canal, like what the hell's going on out here? You know, because the uh, doctors had told my mom that she should abort, you know, she should abort because they x-rayed me at three weeks old. And she didn't even know she was pregnant yet. And she was having stomach issues. So they x-rayed her and x-ray radiation is not a good thing at that, at that stage, <clears throat> especially when that's a brain development stage. So anyway, I absorbed all the fear that she had through that pregnancy. And that was the initial trauma. And then I've had so many other traumas after that. When do you think our consciousness enters a body? Well, in my case, consciousness started quite early because I actually went on a vision quest and asked to re-experience that. It wasn't in my memory at the time, but I asked to remember it so I could heal it. And it was a very intense experience. Um, it was just a lot of cold energy. It was a cobalt blue light that came through and just permeated my body one side at a time. And I wound up getting into a fetal position while I was camping out at this vision quest. I wound up getting into a fetal position and breathing on myself to try to stay warm. It was that bad. And then I also realized, oh, you know, breath is so important to healing and the way you breathe and even now when i you know stub my toe or something i breathe through it and it's it's always better when you breathe through it after your second nde what kind of changes did it create in your life i wasn't impacted very much at that time um i was 17 i was still pretty much in the matrix of society of what is normally done you know go to college, get a job, get married, have kids. So nothing really significant happened with regard to that. Um, it really didn't uh, occur to me. Big shift happened when I was about 30 years old. And I was in some pretty difficult positions in my life. My marriage was not good. My job was not good. I was not at any internal peace at all. And I just demanded, <laughs> I went outside and I demanded, I said, oh, show me the way, you know, show me. And the very next day in church, I had a visual experience. I had a non-ordinary experience through a candlelight in church. I was all by myself. And so this candlelight, what I saw was, um, it was like a slideshow. Normally when my glasses are off, everything's a blur. But this candlelight was a blur, it was like a sphere. 
but it, then it became very clear and it was like a slideshow. And I just saw these images and they were all meaningful to me. There were spiritual images. The first one was Christ with a sacred heart. The sacred heart was the only color in the image. The only, in the images, I had a series of about 12 images that just came in and out like a slideshow. And I wasn't afraid. I just observed and I wanted to see what this was all about. And, um, but at that point in time, I go, who, who do you talk to about this? You know, someone who's experiencing a normal life and has this experience, what do you do? What do you, who do you talk to? What do you do with it? So that was my issue at the time. So I guess after the NDE, when you were 17, you just kind of understood that something weird happened and just kind of filed it away and went on with your life. Correct. Are you still religious and still going to church? You know, I, I consider myself very spiritual and, um, I do, you know, I do think that religions are designed to reconnect, you know, relig is to reconnect to the source. And that's the purpose of religion. I don't believe in dogma. As a matter of fact, I was involved with this group in Austin, Texas, called the Ethical Society of Austin. And the Ethical Society is a group that their motto is deed before creed. And I can really relate to that because it's what you do, not what you profess to believe, which is important. And they don't even, you know, that group is, I would say, mostly agnostic. They don't require that you believe in a deity. They just require that you be a good human and do what's right, you know. Mm. So I do connect with the Unity Church Um and I still go there. Uh, I like their philosophy of, because it's very big into transformation, self-responsibility of changing your life um, with knowledge that you gain. So I don't believe in dogma and pretty much unity does not have a dogma. It's very generic in its spiritual approach. Has the memory of your second NDE faded over the years? Or is it still as real today as it was the day that it happened? Well, it's still as real today as it was then. Um, but again, it didn't prompt me to take any specific action. I don't think I had the maturity level to do that. Um, I was still going through the motions of, of what I thought was normal at the time. But then after the visionary experience, when I was about 30, that's when things, that's when I actually acted on things mm. and went to magic. I did a spiritual pilgrimage to Medjugorje, Yugoslavia, and that was a very eventful thing. And when I got back, uh, yeah, things changed dramatically. What other paranormal experiences have you had? Quite a few, actually. Um, once I got somebody to talk to about these experiences and I was open to seeing where this would lead, I actually jumped into some very experiential things that, like, for instance, one of the first things I did was an experiential Kabbalah 
that was basically journeying to different energy centers or mm, archetypal energies. And that was pretty dramatic. I had many different paranormal experiences with that. I've had uh, rings uh, that I have purchased at powwows. I had a little pine needle basket that I purchased at a powwow from a little grandma lady and put some rings in there and they changed dimensions and the stones were like purified. Um, I've had that experience. I've had, um, um, again, on a vision quest, I experienced a situation where I was talking, went to visit somebody. And when I got there, it was, there was this guy with a salt and pepper beard and a wolf next to him. I go, oh, I must have come up on the wrong camp. But as soon as the person I went to visit spoke, that image broke. And there she was. So I've had a lot of paranormal experiences because I was open to it. And even now I'm, I'm somewhat of a conscious channel. I'm, I stay open to things. I, I use my discernment for sure. But I've had a lot of different experiences that would be considered non-ordinary. And the reason I say non-ordinary reality is because Michael Harner, who was a shamanic trainer back in the nineties, I went to train with him up in Chicago for a long weekend and he used that terminology because basically shamanic journeying is going out of body to different dimensions, finding something that will help heal the person that you're with and then bringing it back. So that's not an ordinary experience by far. And um, so I did experience a number of things there, you know, I'm guessing that a vision quest is some type of Native American experience. Can you share with us more what actually happens and how that works? Yes. Um, the Native American tradition of the vision quest is designed to for you to be alone for three days and three nights and sit patiently until you receive information somehow that what you're here to do, what your primary mission is, what your vision is, and or what, what you're here to do. So you will typically have some kind of visionary experience with an, a being that will help you with that. So that's the, the normal progression of a, a vision quest. And you don't you don't eat anything. You, don't, you all you drink is water. So, are you doing this in your own home? No, you go with a group of people, and uh, the tradition that I followed it was the Lakota, the Lakota Sioux tradition, and uh, there were two people who were very experienced in doing that that led the group. Um, you go out and find your location where you're going to camp out, and then you have a central location. If you get in trouble for whatever reason, you you know, you want to quit for whatever reason, there was a central gathering spot that you would 
go to and that the guides, the people who were leading the vision quest would check every day to make sure everybody was okay, right? Mm. So it was a supervised thing. So you basically would kind of camp out somewhere in the forest and just kind of hang out and would you actually sit there and meditate or just kind of walk around or hang out alone and do whatever? You just sit and wait. That's the idea. Be in silence. Be with yourself long enough to where you have no other distraction other than being with your own thoughts and yourself. Would the vision come in the form of like a dream or imagination? It can come that way. In my particular case, again, it wasn't any powerful visionary experience. I just uh, woke up one morning and I had stuck this, uh, I had a stick by my tent and uh, put some decorations on it. And then I looked at it and it some it somewhat changed shapes. And I looked at it and it was only an image of a Basically, it was a war soldier with that was highly decorated, but his left arm was cut off. Hmm. I was like, oh, geez, you know. And so I had to interpret what that meant. And I think that what it meant to me was that I've been through a lot. But I had, the, I guess, the courage to, to go through it and still survive. Do you think that any one of your NDEs opened you up to having psychic abilities? Yes, I think um, I think I was pretty much born with them. Um, I do feel highly psychic and receptive and intuitive and I get messages all the time. Um, I do think my second one well, both of them in some ways did have an amplification of awareness. And when I was two, the awareness was difficult because I was in a rather difficult family situation. I felt a lot of energies that were very difficult to feel for someone that age. Um, so it was, it was more, it was not pleasant. It was difficult. And the same thing happened with the second one. I started realizing how sensitive I actually was and how difficult the energies that I had to process were. Can you tell us more about your trip to Yugoslavia? And what happened there? Interestingly enough, after this visionary experience in the churches, it was happened to be the first ad, Sunday of Advent. So Thanksgiving time. And I, after that experience, I went back to my house and lit my own candle and see if I got any other messages through a candlelight because I had never experienced that before. So as a scientific nature that I have, I said, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen again. Anyway, I was led to go to Medjugorje, to travel to Medjugorje. Never heard of it before. Um, investigated it. Called my travel agent and said, hey, I would like to go to Medjugorje. 
need uh, I need four seats on the plane, me and my wife and two children who were four and two at the time. But I had to go. I just knew I needed to be there. And so she goes, well, Steve, uh, you know, it usually takes at least a year to get there um, because it's a pilgrimage, spiritual pilgrimage, people from all over the world, primarily Catholic, because it was it was visionary experience of Mary. Mary was appearing to the children. And uh, she goes, but I'll check and I'll call you back. And so she checks and she calls me back and says, well, uh, for some reason, there's four seats available on this trip. It's with a tour of six other, you know, six other people and, or seven other people. But I need to know by Monday. So this is like three days later. I need to know because you need to either book it or not. So. I tried to convince my wife that this was a good idea and she thought I was crazy. Right. And, you know, I did my biggest pitch I could said, what a great idea to be there for Christmas, you know? And she was, she's in a South Louisiana's very Catholic. And my wife was very Catholic. So I thought, well, if I have a shot, this is a good shot. Anyway, it didn't work. I said, well, I really need to go. So I went anyway. I met up with these seven other people. I fly from Lafayette, Louisiana to Chicago, from Chicago to Split, Yugoslavia. I don't know who's in my group. And I mean, Chicago is 50 below zero when we flew out because it was 17 below and then wind chill factor. So they're blowing these torches on the engine. Everybody's looking like, this is really a good idea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I land in Yugoslavia. I find the group. One of the guys I went to high school with, you know, wow. that, that that was odd. Out of eight people, you know, flying in from who knows where, one of them I went to high school with. Anyway, it was a very interesting experience. I stayed with a family. It's a very simple village. It's 2,000 people, and they live off the land. You know, they make their own milk. They make their own cheese, make their own bread and, you know, wood-burning stoves still. And just a very calm, simple, peaceful place. And so I was there for about seven days and uh, had my own experiences in, in the church, had sign this well some of the signs of the miracles that were occurring there is that the silver colored med medallions or rosaries that you would purchase would turn from a silver color to a gold color and i didn't find out until i landed back in chicago that about 80 percent of the 50 that i bought were all gold you know Hmm. You live in New Mexico, and I think that there are a lot of spiritual things going on there. Have you been to any of those? Yes. Um, You know, this is a very old area with ancient societies. I feel very connected to the Anasazi culture that were basically the Pueblo Indians. They, They broke up into the Pueblo societies. So here in New Mexico, we have 19 active Pueblo villages. And of course, the Navajo Nation is the largest by far in the country is with about 350,000 people. Mm. 
And, you know, the Native American spirituality, I'm, my heritage is American Indian and Spanish. So I can relate on a soul level, even if I was not genetically partly Native American, I still relate to it. Again, I think as soul memories. There's one place I want to go to. It's called Chaco Canyon. That was the primary meeting point. Native American spirituality is very um, deep and it's very, it honors the ancestors and having spirits around you is not unusual. It's normal. At this point in your life, would you consider yourself a shaman? Well, I've done it before. I don't think that I'm designed to be a shaman this lifetime. I've done it before in past lifetimes. Um, I think when I first started talking to somebody about certain soul memories, she goes, yeah, um, I've had a history many times of being a medicine man and chief of tribes and stuff. She goes, but just remember, these are soul memories and it's not necessarily for you to replicate a past life. So I said, okay. So I took that as very important information because everything in the healing, I got into the healing arts after I got back to Medjugorje, quit my oil business job and went into the healing arts and everybody thought I was nuts, but I knew what I was doing, you know? And uh, a lot of it had to do with self-healing and the message in Medjugorje actually was first message in many years. I was there on the ninth year. And the message was the practical steps to world peace, because that's what the main message was, was world peace. And so the message was the steps, the practical steps to world peace. And the first one was make peace within yourself. And then make peace within your family, make peace within your community. And then you don't have to worry about the rest, you know, world peace will occur. So probably one of the more difficult things to do is make peace within yourself, you know? And so that's what I focused on, not only for myself and got into activities that would help me heal the non-peace within myself, but I also wanted to help others do that as I went along. And so I got into body work and energy work, Reiki master and all that stuff. And it was very profound, but it was not traditional shamanic work. But it had similar results. You mentioned earlier that you were a channeler. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people think you need to be in an altered state to channel. And my experience has not been that. And I don't know whether it is a, a development that I've had over the years in my soul growth that I can just automatically say okay i'm there and be able to receive information for myself or for someone else sometimes it'll just come out like somebody you know i'm always consciously aware of how i relate to others and oftentimes people just come up to me and ask me things out of the blue like you know kind of some guidance type questions and something will just come out and I don't know, you know, it will, 
or it might appear as an image and that image will be a whole slew of sentences and somehow it seems to resonate with them going back to your ndes do you think that that being and i think you said it was an orb do you think that was a spirit guide or who yeah, it appeared again when I was doing my shamanic training up in Chicago with Michael Harner. One of the things we, we had to do while you're drumming is go up to the upper world, out of body basically, and find your primary guide. And you have to basically visualize going up through floors or layers of clouds until you find your guide. And... I was getting a little concerned because I could tell they were getting ready to wrap it up and I hadn't found my guide yet. I just kept methodically going up and couldn't find anybody. And so somehow we got the signal that, okay, wrap it up, Mm -hmm. you know? So hell, I'm going to go up to the top floor and look down instead of trying to look up and being obscured. I'm going to go to the top floor and look down. Well, that top floor was the 72nd floor. And there's that sphere of light, same guide, right there on the 71st floor, right there. So I went and found him, you know, or her, it, or the thingy, whatever you want to call it. And, yep, there he was again. And again, we had a conversation about, like, you'll figure it out. You know, I was like, damn it. Oh, wow. (laughs) Just tell me. So right now, what do you think your purpose is? Right now, it's evolved into, um, I've gone back to the healing arts, and I've, um, you know, I've done many different things just to earn an income and live and be consciously aware of continuously healing yourself and being at peace with yourself. I've really focused on that aspect. But so for right now, um, this whole trauma business was rather new to me oddly enough this last year i've made a huge huge progress in making some internal peace with myself knowing and acknowledging some of the actual traumas that i've been through i think that most people it's a matter of time before you actually acknowledge and address certain things that are been so painful that you really don't want to deal with and somehow that you know in your inherent intelligence of the body will actually suppress it until it's the right time to deal with it are you healing traumas only in this life or in past lives as well that's interesting because i i have not only has it been this life but it's become very clear to me that I'm healing past life traumas as well that are on the similar vibration of what I'm dealing with today. It also deals with uh, inherited traumas that you get to dig into. Once you acknowledge this lifetime's trauma, you, there are certain things that you think about like, You know, like I think about the oppression of the Native American Indians and, you know, the real uh, what matters about the Black Lives Matters, in my opinion, is that we need to acknowledge 
what kind of oppression we've had on all races here in the United States. We do have a black eye when it comes to the tragic depopulation of the Native Americans uh, here in the United States. And, you know, there was 494 nations here when the first Europeans arrived. And these are some ancient civilizations. And there's a lot of trauma that is within that culture, wounded knee. And even in this area where the Spaniards came and conquered Mexico and Santa Fe was established as the Northern capital so that they can control this area. They claimed a whole huge territory up here. And so this land has a lot of trauma and I think trauma can be connected to the land too. Mm -hmm. And so where you live can trigger some traumas, but I think I'm here in Santa Fe to heal some of this trauma that I've had in the past and in past lives. You've moved around some in your life. Do you think that you're attracted to New Mexico because of past life actions and you're coming back or just to kind of heal things in the area? Yes, I, I do think that's part of it. That's a large part of it. And even when I was in Lafayette, Louisiana at college, I had certain traumatic experiences that related to past lifetimes. And that had more to do with the French coming down the Mississippi um, and me being um, a liaison for the French and then realizing how they were using me to gain the trust of the tribes and then they would decimate them and i felt horrible about that after watching this podcast people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions are you open to that and if so how should they reach you yes i am my email is stephen michael 369 at yahoo.com do you have anything that you're working on or that you would like to promote? Yeah, what I would like to do, it's, you know, with the advent of the internet and capabilities and platforms, I did create a Patreon page that I want to do writings and publish um, information. And I would like to eventually to have it be interactive. It's a way for somebody to support me financially so that I can focus more time and energy on it. It's only $12 a month. And I'd like to have an interactive capability. I've also created a YouTube channel years ago. um, And the most important part is the playlist that I've accumulated on that. And so if, if you search on the YouTube channel, Stephen Michael Santa Fe, you'll pull up my channel and go to the playlist. The the other videos I have are just pretty much entertainment. But the the gut the key information is on my playlist where I've accumulated a number of videos that were important to me and in my development. And it's just a way for someone to look at this stuff that's not normally talked about. And to hopefully trigger a memory within that viewer that, oh, yeah, they remember that. And I really think, you know, there, there's really no gurus. There, you have, 
there are people with knowledge, but you have to have a lot of wisdom to use that knowledge. And so I'm hoping that it will trigger memories, soul memories within that person. If you send me the links, I will post the links to those in the description so people can find them. Sure, I will. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? You know, things are definitely, I think there's a big positive with this whole COVID situation that we've dealt with. Yes, it's bringing up a lot of reevaluation of what's important in everybody's lives. You know, for two years, we've had to sit with ourselves and primary primarily isolation and really regroup and think, okay, you know, now that the world has changed, how can I adapt and how can I make life better for not only me, but my family and my community? Mm-hmm. So I think there's hope. I, I want to generate a sense of hope because there is hope. There is positives to be seen and regardless of what circumstances you're going through, the um, idea of equanimity is very important. You know, the state of equanimity is to be an observer of what is happening to you without a lot of emotional triggering. And uh, meditation can help a lot in that. And so, if you view your life and your experiences more from an objective viewpoint and stay in this state of equanimity, you can learn a lot. You can learn a lot. Stephen, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest today. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Thank you, Jeff. You too. All right. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.